What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 10 of Tales of the Five Towns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 10. The Sisters Keita. The manuscript ran thus. When I had finished my daily personal examination of the ropes and trapezes, I hesitated a moment and then climbed up again to the roof, where the red and the blue long ropes were fastened. I took my sharp scissors from my chatelaine and gently fretted the blue rope with one blade of the scissors until only a single strand was left intact. I gazed down at the vast floor a hundred feet below. The afternoon varieties were over, and a phrenologist was talking to a small crowd of gapers in a corner. The rest of the floor was pretty empty, save for the chairs and the fancy stalls, and the fatigued stall-girls in their black dresses. I, too, had once almost been a stall-girl at the aquarium. I descended. Few observed me in my severe street dress. Our secretary, Charles, attended me on the stage. "'Everything right, Miss Paquita? he said, handing me my hat and gloves which I had given him to hold. I nodded. I could see that he thought I was in one of my stern, far-away moods. "'Miss Maraquita is waiting for you in the carriage,' he said. We drove away in silence. I, with my inborn melancholy, too sad, Sally, Mariquita, too happy, to speak. This daily afternoon drive was really part of our turn. A team of four mules driven by a negro will make a sensation even in Regent Street. All London looked at us, and contrasted our impassive beauty, mine, mature, too mature and dark, Sally's so blonde and youthful, our simple costumes, and the fact that we stayed at an exclusive Mayfair hotel, with the stupendous flourish of our turnout. The renowned sisters Keita, Paquita and Mariquita Keita, and the renowned mules of the sisters Keita. Two hundred pounds a week at the aquarium, twenty-five thousand francs for one month at the Casino de Paris, twelve thousand five hundred dollars for a tour of fifty performances in the States. Fifteen hundred pesos a night in a special train, deluxe, in Argentina and Brazil. I could see the loungers and the drivers talking and pointing as usual. The gilded loungers in Verre's café got up and watched us through the windows as we passed. This was fame. For nearly twenty years I had been intimate with fame, and with the envy of women and the foolish homage of men. We saw dozens of omnibuses bearing the legend Keita. Then we met one which said, Empire Theatre, Valdez, the matchless juggler. And Sally smiled with pleasure. He's coming to see our turn tonight after his, she remarked, blushing. Valdez? Why? I asked, without turning my head. He wants us to sup with him to celebrate our engagement. When do you mean to get married? I asked her shortly. I felt quite calm. I guess you're a tartar today, said the pretty thing, with a touch of her American sauciness. We haven't studied it out yet. It was only yesterday afternoon he kissed me for the first time. 
Then she bent towards me with her characteristic, plaintive, wistful appeal. "'Say, you aren't vexed, Selina, are you, because of this?' "'Of course he wants me to tour with him after we're married, and do a double act. He's got lots of dandy ideas for a double act. But I won't, I won't, Selina, unless you say the word. Now don't you go and be cross, Selina.' I let myself expand generously. "'My darling girl,' I said, glancing at her kindly, "'you ought to know me better. "'Of course I'm not cross, and of course you must tour with Valdez. "'I shall be all right. "'How do you suppose I managed before I invented you?' "'I smiled like an indulgent mother. "'Oh, I didn't mean that,' she said. "'I know you're frightfully clever. I'm nothing—' "'I hope you'll be awfully happy,' I whispered, squeezing her hand. "'And don't forget that I introduced him to you. "'I knew him years before you did.' "'I'm the cause of this bliss. Do you remember that cold morning in Berlin?' "'Oh, well, I should say,' she exclaimed in ecstasy. When we reached our rooms in the hotel, I kissed her warmly. Women do that sort of thing. Then a card was brought to me. George Capey, it said, and in pencil, of the five towns. I shrugged my shoulders. Sally had gone to scribble a note to her Valdez. "'Show Mr. Capey in,' I said and a natty young man entered, half nervousness, half audacity. "'How did you know I come from the Five Towns?' I questioned him. "'I am on the Evening Mail,' he said, "'where they know everything, madame.' I was annoyed. Then they know, on the Evening Mail, that Paquita Kita has never been interviewed and never will be,' I said. "'Besides,' he went on, "'I come from the Five Towns myself.' "'Bursley?' I asked mechanically. "'Bursley!' he ejaculated, then added, "'You haven't been near old Bosley since—' It was true. "'No,' I said hastily, "'it's many years since I've been in England, even. "'Do they know down there who Keita is?' "'Not they,' he replied. I grew reflective. "'Stars such as I have no place of origin. "'We shoot up out of a void and sink back into a void.' I had forgotten Bursley and Bursley folk. Recollections rushed in upon me. I felt beautifully sad. I drew off my gloves and flung my hat on a chair with a movement that would have bewitched a man of the world, but Mr. George Capey was unimpressed. I laughed. What's the joke? he inquired. I adored him for his Bursleyness. I was just thinking of fat Mrs. Cartledge, who used to keep that fishmonger shop in Oldcastle Street, opposite Bates. I wonder if she's still there. She is, he said, and fatter than ever. She's getting on in years now. I broke the rule of a lifetime, and let him interview me. Tell them I'm thirty-seven, I said. Yes, I mean it. Tell them. And then for another titbit I explained to him how I had discovered Sally at Costrum Beals in New York five years ago and made her my sister for stage purposes, because I was lonely and liked her American simplicity and twang. He departed full of tea and satisfaction. It was our last night at the aquarium. The place was crammed. The houses where I performed were always crammed. Our turn was in three parts and lasted half an hour. The first part was a skirt dance in full afternoon dress. Danse de modernité, I called it. The second was a double horizontal bar act. The third was the famous act of the red and blue ropes in full evening dress. 
It was ten-forty-five when we climbed the silk ladders for the third part. High up in the roof, separated from each other by nearly the length of the great hall, Sally and I stood on two little platforms. I held the ends of the red and the blue ropes. I had to let the blue rope swing across the hall to her. She would seize it and, clutching it, swoop like the ball of an enormous pendulum from her platform to mine. But would she? I should then swing on the red rope to the platform she had left. Then the band would stop for the thrilling moment, and the lights would be lowered, each lighting and holding a powerful electric hand-light, one red, one blue. We should signal the drummer and plunge simultaneously into space, flash past each other in mid-flight, exchanging the lights as we passed, this was the trick, and soar to opposite platforms again, amid frenzied applause. There were no nets. That was what ought to occur. I stood bowing to the floor of tiny upturned heads, and jerking the ropes a little. Then I let Sally's rope go with a push, and it dropped away from me, and in a few seconds she had it safe in her strong hand. She was taller than me, with a fuller figure, yet she looked quite small on her distant platform. All the evening I had been thinking of fat old Mrs. Cartledge messing and slopping among cod and halibut on white tiles. I could not get Bursley and my silly infancy out of my head. I followed my feverish career from the age of fifteen, when that strange something in me, which makes an artist, had first driven me forth to conquer two continents. I thought of all the golden loves I had scorned, and my own love which had been ignored, unnoticed, but which still obstinately burned. I glanced downwards and descried Valdez precisely where Sally had said he would be. Valdez, what a fool you were, and I hated a fool. I am one of those who can love and hate, who can love and despise, who can love and loathe the same object in the same moment. Then I signalled to Sally to plunge, and my eyes filled with tears, for you see, somehow, in some senseless, sentimental way, the thought of fat Mrs. Cartilage and my silly infancy had forced me to send Sally the red rope, not the blue one. We exchanged ropes on alternate nights, but this was her night for the blue one. She swung over, alighting accurately at my side with that exquisite outward curve of the spine which had originally attracted me to her. "'You sent me the red one,' she said to me, after she had acknowledged the applause. Yes, I said, never mind, stick to it now you've got it. Here's the red light. Have you seen Valdez? She nodded. I took the blue light and clutched the blue rope. Instead of murder, suicide, since it must be one or the other. And why not? Indeed, I censured myself in that second for having meant to kill Sally. Not because I was ashamed of the sin, but because the revenge would have been so pitiful and weak. If Valdez the matchless was capable of passing me over and kneeling to the pretty thing, I stood ready. The world was to lose that fineness, that distinction, that originality, that disturbing subtlety which constituted Paquita Quita. I plunged. I was on the other platform. The rope had held. Then... I remembered nothing of the flight except that I had passed near the upturned pleasant face of Valdez. The band stopped, 
The lights of the hall were lowered. All was dark. I switched on my dazzling blue light. Sally switched on her red one. I stood ready. The rope could not possibly endure a second strain. I waved to Sally and signalled to the conductor. The world was to lose Paquita. The drum began its formidable roll. Whirr! I plunged and saw the red star rushing towards me. I snatched it and soared upwards. The blue rope seemed to tremble. As I came near the platform at decreasing speed, it seemed to stretch like elastic. It broke. The platform jumped up suddenly over my head, but I caught at the silk ladder. I was saved. There was a fearful silence, and then the appalling shock of hysterical applause from seven thousand throats. I slid down the ladder, ran across the stage into my dressing-room for a cloak, out again into the street. In two days I was in Budapest. End of chapter 10「Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett Chapter 11 Nocturne at the Majestic Part 1 In the daily strenuous life of a great hotel, there are periods during which its bewildering activities slacken, and the vast organism seems to be under the influence of an opiate. Such period recurs after dinner, when the guests are preoccupied by the mysterious process of digestion in the drawing-rooms or smoking-rooms or in the stalls of a theatre. On the evening of this nocturne the well-known circular entrance-hall of the Majestic, with its tessellated pavement, its malachite pillars, its Persian rugs, its lounges, and its renowned stuffed bears at the foot of the grand stairway, was for the moment deserted save by the head hall-porter and the head night-porter and the girl in the bureau. It was a quarter to nine, and the head hall-porter was abdicating his pagoda to the head night-porter and telling him the necessary secrets of the day. These two lords, before whom the motley panorama of human existence was continually being enrolled, held a portentous confabulation night and morning. They had no illusions. They knew life. Shakespeare himself might have listened to them with advantage. The girl in the bureau, like a beautiful and languishing animal in its cage, leaned against her window and looked between two pillars at the magnificent lords. She was too far off to catch their talk, and, indeed, she watched them absently in a reverie induced by the sweet melancholy of the summer twilight, by the torpidity of the hour, and by the prospect of the next day, which was her day off. The liveried functionaries ignored her, probably scorned her as a mere pretty little morsel. Nevertheless, she was the centre of energy, not they. If money were payable, she was the person to receive it. If a customer wanted a room, she would choose it. And the lords had to call her Miss. The immense and splendid hotel pulsed round this simple heart, hidden under a white blouse. Especially in summer, her presence and the presence of her companions in the bureau, but to-night she was alone, ministered to the satisfaction of male guests, whose cruel but profoundly human instincts found pleasure in the fact that, no matter when they came in from their wanderings, the pretty captives were always there in the bureau, smiling welcome, 
puzzling stupid little brains and puckering pale brows over enormous ledgers, twittering borrowed facetiousness from rosy mouths and smoothing out seductive toilettes with long, thin hands that were made for ring and bracelet and rudder lines, and not a bit for the pen and the ruler. The pretty little thing despised of the functionaries corresponded almost exactly in appearance to the typical bureau girl. She was moderately tall, she had a good, slim figure, all pleasant curves, flaxen hair and plenty of it, and a dainty, rather expressionless face. The ears and mouth were very small, the eyes large and blue, the nose so-so, the cheeks and forehead of an equal ivory pallor, the chin trifling with a crease under the lower lip, and a rich convexity springing out from below the crease. The extremities of the full lips were nearly always drawn up in a smile, mechanical but infallibly attractive. The hair was of an orthodox frizziness. You would have said she was a nice, kind, good-natured girl, flirtatious but correct, well adapted to adorn a dog-cart on Sundays. This was Nina, foolish Nina, aged twenty-one. In her reverie the entire Hotel Majestic weighed on her. She had a more than adequate sense of her own solitary importance in the Bureau, and stirring obscurely beneath that consciousness were the deep, ineradicable longings of a poor, pretty girl for heaps of money, endless luxury of finery and chocolates, and sentimental silken dalliance. Suddenly a stranger entered the hall. His advent seemed to wake the place out of the trance into which it had fallen. The nocturne had begun. Nina straightened herself and intensified her eternal smile. The two porters became military, and smiled with a special and peculiar urbanity. Several lesser but still lordly functionaries appeared among the pillars. A page-boy emerged by magic from the region of the chimney-piece, like Mephistopheles in Faust's study and some guests of both sexes strolled chattering across the tessellated pavement as they passed from one wing of the hotel to the other. "'How do, Tom?' said the stranger, grasping the hand of the head hall porter, and nodding to the head night porter. His voice showed that he was an American, and his demeanour that he was one of those experienced, wealthy, and kindly travellers who know the Christian names of all the hall porters in the world, and have the trick of securing their intimacy and fealty. He wore a blue suit and a light grey wide-awake, and his fine moustache was grizzled. In his left hand he carried a brown bag. "'Nicely, thank you, sir,' Tom replied. "'How are you, sir?' "'Oh, about six and six. Whereupon both porters laughed heartily. Tom escorted him to the bureau, and tried to relieve him of his bag. Inferior lords escorted Tom. "'I guess I'll keep the grip,' said the stranger. "'Mr. Pank will be around with some more baggage pretty soon. "'We've expressed the rest on to the steamer.' "'Well, my dear,' he went on, turning to Nina, "'you're a fresh face here.' He looked her steadily in the eyes. "'Yes, I am,' she said, conquered instantly. Radiant and triumphant, the man brought good humour into every face, like some wonderful combination of the sun and the sea-breeze. "'Give me two bedrooms and a parlour, please,' he commanded. First floor?' asked Nina prettily. First floor? Well, I should say. And on the strand, my dear.' 
She bent over her ledgers, blushing. "'Send someone to the phone, Tom, and let them put me on to the Regency, will you?' said the stranger. "'Yes, sir. Samuels, go and ring up the Regency Theatre. Quick!' Swift departure of a lord. "'And ask Alphonse to come up to my bedroom in ten minutes from now,' the stranger proceeded to Tom. "'I shall want a dandy supper for fourteen at a quarter after eleven. "'Yes, sir. No dinner, sir?' "'No. We dined on the Pullman.' "'Well, my dear, figured it out yet?' "'Numbers a hundred and two, a hundred and twenty, and a hundred and seven, said Nina. "'Keys one o two, one twenty, and one o seven, said Tom. "'Swift departure of another lord to the pagoda. "'How much?' demanded the stranger. "'The bedrooms are twenty-five shillings, and the sitting-room two guineas.' "'I guess Mr. Pank won't mind that. "'Hello, Pank, you're here. "'I'm through. Your number's one o two or one twenty, which you fancy?' Just going to the phone a minute, and then I'll join you upstairs. Mr. Pank was a younger man, possessing a thin, astute, intellectual face. He walked into the hall with noticeable deliberation. His travelling costume was faultless, but from beneath his straw hat his black hair sprouted in a somewhat peculiar fashion over his broad forehead. He smiled lazily and shrewdly, and without a word disappeared into a lift. Two large portmanteaus accompanied him. Presently the elder stranger could be heard battling with the obstinate idiosyncrasies of a London telephone. "'You haven't registered,' Nina called to him in her tremulous, delicate, captivating voice as he came out of the telephone box. He advanced to sign, and, taking a pen and leaning on the front of the bureau, wrote in the visitor's book in a careful, legible hand, "'Lionel Belmont, New York.' Having thus written, and still resting on the right elbow, he raised his right hand a little, and waved the pen like a delicious menace at Nina. "'Mr. Pank hasn't registered either,' he said slowly, with a charming affectation of solemnity, as though accusing Mr. Pank of some appalling crime. Nina laughed timidly as she pushed his room ticket across the page of the big book. She thought that Mr. Lionel Belmont was perfectly delightful. No, he hasn't, she said, trying also to be arch. But he must. At that moment she happened to glance at the right hand of Mr. Belmont. In the brilliance of the electric light she could see the fair skin of the wrist and forearm within the whiteness of his shirt-sleeve. She stared at what she saw, every muscle tense. I guess you can round up Mr. Pank yourself, my dear, later on, said Lionel Belmont, and turned quickly away, intent on the next thing. He did not notice that her large eyes had grown larger, and her pale face paler. In another moment the hall was deserted again. Mr. Belmont had ascended in the lift, Tom had gone to his rest, and the head night-porter was concealed in the pagoda. Nina sank down limply on her stool, her nostrils twitching. She feared she was about to faint, but this final calamity did not occur. She had, nevertheless, experienced the greatest shock of her brief life, and the way of it was thus. Part 2 Nina Malpass was born amid the embers of one of those fiery conjugal dramas which occur with romantic frequency in the provincial towns of the northern Midlands where industrial conditions are such as to foster an independent spirit among women of the lower class generally, 
and where by long tradition character is allowed to exploit itself more freely than in the southern parts of our island. Lemuel Malpass was a dashing young commercial traveller with what is known as an agreeable address in Bursley, one of the five towns, Staffordshire. On the strength of his dash he wooed and married the daughter of an hotel-keeper in the neighbouring town of Hanbridge. Six months after the wedding, in other words, at the most dangerous period of the connubial career, Mrs. Malpass's father died, and Mrs. Malpass became the absolute mistress of eight thousand pounds. Lemuel had carefully foreseen this windfall, and wished to use the money in enterprises of the earthenware trade. Mrs. Malpass, pretty and vivacious, with a self-conceit hardened by the adulation of saloon-bars, very decidedly thought otherwise. Her motto was, what's yours is mine, but what's mine's my own. The difference was accentuated. Long mutual resistances were followed by reconciliations, which grew more and more transitory, and at length both recognised that the union, not founded on genuine affection, had been a mistake. "'Keep your damned brass,' Lemuel exclaimed one morning, and he went off on a journey and forgot to come back. A curious letter, dated from Liverpool, wished his wife happiness, and informed her that, since she was well provided for, he had no scruples about leaving her. Mrs. Malpass was startled at first, but she soon perceived that what Lemuel had done was exactly what the brilliant and enterprising Lemuel might have been expected to do. She jerked up her doll's head and ejaculated, So much the better. A few weeks later she sold the furniture and took rooms in Scarborough, where amid pleasurable surroundings she determined to lead the joyous life of a grass widow free of all cares. Then, to her astonishment and disgust, Nina was born. She had not bargained for Nina. She found herself in the tiresome position of a mother whose explanations of her child lack plausibility. One lodging-housekeeper to whom she hazarded the statement that Lemuel was in Australia had saucily replied, I thought maybe it was the North Pole he was gone to. This decided Mrs. Malpass. She returned suddenly to the five towns, where at least her reputation was secure. Only a week previously Lemuel had learnt indirectly that she had left their native district. He determined thenceforward to forget her completely. Mrs. Malpass's prettiness was of the fleeting sort. After Nina's birth she began to get stout and coarse, and the nostalgia of the saloon-bar, the coffee-room and the sanded portico overtook her. The Tiger at Bursley was for sale, a respectable commercial hotel, the best in town. She purchased it, wines, omnibus connection and all, and developed into the typical landlady in black silk and gold rings. In the Tiger Nina was brought up. She was a pretty child from her earliest years, and received the caresses of all as a matter of course. She went to a good school, studied the piano and learnt dancing, and at sixteen did her hair up. She did as she was told without fuss, being apparently of a lethargic temperament. She had all the money and all the clothes that her heart could desire. She was happy, and, in a quiet way, she deemed herself a rather considerable item in the world. 
When she was eighteen, her mother died miserably of cancer, and it was discovered that the liabilities of Mrs. Malpass' estate exceeded its assets, and the tiger mortgaged up to its value. The creditors were not angry. They attributed the state of affairs to illness and the absence of male control, and good-humouredly accepted what they could get. Nonetheless, Nina, the child of luxury and sloth, had to start life with several hundreds of pounds less than nothing. Of her father all trace had been long since lost. A place was found for her, and for over two years she saw the world from the office of a famous hotel in Doncaster. Her lethargy, and an invaluable gift of adapting herself to circumstances, saved her from any acute unhappiness in the Yorkshire town. Instinctively she ceased to remember the tiger and past splendours. Equally, if she had married a duke instead of becoming a bookkeeper, she would have ceased to remember the tiger and past humility. Then, by good or ill fortune, she had the offer of a situation at the Hotel Majestic, Strand, London. The Majestic and the sights thereof woke up the sleeping soul. Before her death, Mrs. Malpass had told Nina many things about the vanished Lemuel. Among others, the curious detail that he had two small moles, one hairless, the other her suit, close together on the underside of his right wrist. Nina had seen precisely such marks of identification on the right wrist of Mr. Lionel Belmont. She was convinced that Lionel Belmont was her father. There could not be two men in the world so stamped by nature. She perceived that in changing his name he had chosen Lionel because of its similarity to Lemuel. She felt certain, too, that she had noticed vestiges of the Five Towns accent beneath his Americanisms. But apart from these reasons, she knew by a super-rational instinct that Lionel Belmont was her father. It was not the call of blood, but the positiveness of a woman asserting that a thing is so because she is sure it is so. Part 3 Nina was not of an imaginative disposition. The romance of this extraordinary encounter made no appeal to her. She was the sort of girl that constantly reads novelettes, and yet always, with fatigued scorn, refers to them as silly. Stupid little Nina was intensely practical at heart and it was the practical side of her father's reappearance that engaged her bird-like mind. She did not stop to reflect that truth is stranger than fiction. Her tiny heart was not agitated by any ecstatic ponderings upon the wonder and mystery of fate. She did not feel strangely drawn towards Lionel Belmont, nor did she feel that he supplied her something which had always been wanting to her. On the other hand, her pride, and Nina was very proud, found much satisfaction in the fact that her father, having turned up, was so fine, handsome, dashing, good-humoured, and wealthy. It was well, and excellently well, and delicious to have a father like that. The possession of such a father opened up vistas of a future so enticing and glorious that her present career became instantly loathsome to her. It suddenly seemed impossible that she could have tolerated the existence of a hotel clerk for a single week. Her eyes were opened, and she saw, as many women have seen, that luxury was an absolute necessity to her. All her ideas soared with the magic swiftness of the beanstalk. 
and at the same time she was terribly afraid, unaccountably afraid, to confront Mr. Belmont and tell him that she was his Nina. He was entirely unaware that he had a Nina. "'I'm your daughter. I know by your moles.' She whispered the words in her tiny heart, and felt sure that she could never find courage to say them aloud to that great and important man. The announcement would be too monstrous, incredible, and absurd. People would laugh, he would laugh, and Nina could stand anything better than being laughed at. Even supposing she proved to him his paternity, she thought of the horridness of going to lawyers' offices, he might decline to recognise her or he might throw her fifty pounds a year as one throws sixpence to an importunate crossing-sweeper to be rid of her. The United States existed in her mind chiefly as a country of highly remarkable divorce laws, and she thought that Mr. Belmont might have married again. A fashionable and arrogant Mrs. Belmont and a dazzling Miss Belmont, aged possibly eighteen, might arrive, both of them steeped in all conceivable luxury, at any moment. Where would Nina be then, with her two-and-elevenpence-halfpenny blouse from Glaives? Mr. Belmont, accompanied by Alphonse, the head-waiter in the salle à manger, descended in the lift and crossed the hall to the portico, where he stood talking for a few seconds. Mr. Belmont turned, and, as he conversed with Alphonse, gazed absently in the direction of the bureau. He looked straight through the pretty captive. After all, despite his superficial heartiness, she could be nothing to him, so rich, assertive, and truly important. A hansom was called for him, and he departed. She observed that he was in evening dress now. No, her cause was just, but it was too startling. That was what was the matter with it. Then she told herself she would write to Lionel Belmont. She would write a letter that night. At nine-thirty she was off duty. She went upstairs to her perch in the roof, and sat on her bed for over two hours. Then she came down again to the bureau with some bluish notepaper and envelopes in her hand, and, in response to the surprised question of the pink-frocked colleague who had taken her place, she explained that she wanted to write a letter. "'You do look that bad, Miss Malpas,' said the other girl, who made a speciality of compassion. "'Do I?' said Nina. "'Yes, you do.' "'What have you got on now, my poor dear?' "'What's that to you? I'll thank you to mind your own business, Miss Bella Perkins.' Usually Nina was not soon ruffled, but that night all her nerves were exasperated and exceedingly sensitive. "'Oh,' said the girl, "'what price the Duchess of Doncaster! And I was just going to wish you a nice day to-morrow for your holiday, too.' Nina seated herself at the table to write the letter. An electric light burned directly over her frizzy head. She wrote a weak but legible and regular backhand. She hated writing letters, partly because she was dubious about her spelling, and partly because of an obscure but irrepressible suspicion that her letters were of necessity silly. She pondered for a long time, and then wrote, Dear Mr. Belmont, I venture... She made a new start. Dear Sir... I hope you will not think me... And a third attempt. My dear father. No, it was preposterous. It could no more be written than it could be said. The situation was too much for simple Nina. 
Suddenly the grand circular hall of the Majestic was filled with a clamour at once charming and fantastic. There was chattering of musical gay American voices, pattering of elegant feet on the tessellated pavement, the unique, incomparable sound of the frou-frou of many frocks, and above all this the rich tones of Mr. Lionel Belmont. Nina looked up and saw her radiant father the centre of a group of girls, all young, all beautiful, all stylish, all with picture-hats, all self-possessed, all sparkling, doubtless the recipients of that dandy supper. Oh, how insignificant and homicidal Nina felt! Thirteen of you!' exclaimed Lionel Belmont, pulling his superb moustache. Two to a handsome? I guess I want six and a half handsomes, boy!' There was an explosion of delicious laughter, and the page-boy grinned, ran off, and began whistling in the portico like a vexed locomotive. The thirteen fair, shepherded by Lionel Belmont, passed out into the murmurous summer night of the Strand. Cab after cab drove up, and Nina saw that her father, after filling each cab, paid each cabman. In three minutes the dreamlike scene was over. Mr. Belmont re-entered the hotel, winked humorously at the occupant of the pagoda, ignored the bureau, and departed to his rooms. Nina ripped her inchoate letters into small pieces, and with a tart good-night to Miss Bella Perkins, who was closing her ledgers, the hour being close upon twelve-thirty, she passed sedately, stiffly, as though in performance of some vestal's ritual, up the grand staircase. Turning to the right at the first landing, she traversed a long corridor, which was no part of the route to her cubicle on the ninth floor. This corridor was lighted by glowing sparks which hung on yellow cords from the central line of the ceiling. Underfoot was a heavy but narrow crimson-patterned carpet with a strip of polished oak parquet on either side of it. Exactly along the central line of the carpet Nina tripped languorously like an automaton, and exactly over her head glittered the line of electric sparks. The corridor and the journey seemed to be interminable, and Nina on some inscrutable and mystic errand. At length she moved aside from the religious line, went into a service cabinet, and emerged with a small bunch of pass-keys. Number 107 was Lionel Belmont's sitting-room, number 102 his bedroom was opposite to 107, number 108 another sitting-room was, as Nina knew, unoccupied. She noiselessly let herself in to number 108, closed the door, and stood still. After a minute she switched on the light. These two rooms, numbers 108 and 107, had once communicated, but as space grew precious with the growing success of the Majestic, they had been finally separated, and the door between them locked and masked by furniture. By reason of the door, Nina could hear Lionel Belmont moving to and fro in number 107. She listened a long time. Then, involuntarily, she yawned with fatigue. How silly of me to be here, she thought. What good will this do me? She extinguished the light and opened the door to leave. At the same instant, the door of number 107, three feet off, opened. She drew back with a start of horror. Suppose she had collided with her father on the landing. Timorously she peeped out and saw Lionel Belmont, in his shirt-sleeves, disappear round the corner. 
He is going to talk with his friend Mr. Pank, Nina thought, knowing that number 120 lay at some little distance round the corner. Mr. Belmont had left the door of number 107 slightly ajar. An unseen and terrifying force compelled Nina to venture into the corridor, and then to push the door of number 107 wide open. The same force, not at all herself, quite beyond herself, seemed to impel her by the shoulders into the room. As she stood unmistakably within her father's private sitting-room, scared, breathing rapidly, inquisitive, she said to herself, I shall hear him coming back, and I can run out before he turns the corner of the corridor. And she kept her little pink ears alert. She looked about the softly brilliant room, such an extravagant triumph of luxurious comfort as twenty years ago would have aroused comment even in Mayfair, but there were scores of similar rooms in the Majestic. No one thought twice of them. Her father's dress-coat was thrown arrogantly over a Louis Quatorze chair, and this careless flinging of the expensive shining coat across the gilded chair somehow gave Nina a more intimate appreciation of her father's grandeur and of the great and glorious life he led. She longed to recline indolently in a priceless tea-gown on the couch by the fireplace and issue orders. She approached the writing-table, littered with papers, documents in scores and hundreds. To the left was the brown bag. It was locked and very heavy, she thought. To the right was a pile of telegrams. She picked up one and read, Pank, Grand Hotel, Birmingham. Why not Burgle Hotel? Simplest, most effective plan, and solves all difficulties. Belmont. She read it twice, crunched it in her left hand, and picked up another one. Pank, Adelphi Hotel, Liverpool. Your objection absurd. See safe in Bureau Majestic. Quite easy. Seen with girl, second evening. Belmont. The thing flashed blindingly upon her. Her father and Mr. Pank belonged to the swell mob of which she had heard and seen so much at Doncaster. She at once became the excessively knowing and suspicious hotel employee, to whom every stranger is a rogue until he has proved the contrary. Had she lived through three St. Ledger weeks for nothing? At the hotel at Doncaster, what they didn't know about thieves and sharpers was not knowledge. The landlord kept a loaded revolver in his desk there during the week, and she herself had been provided with a whistle, which she was to blow at the slightest sign of a row. She had blown it once, and seven policemen had appeared within thirty seconds. The landlord used to tell tales of masterly and huge scoundrelism that would make Charles Peace turn in his grave. And the landlord had ever insisted that no one, no one at all, could always distinguish with certainty between a real gent and a swell mobsman. So her father and Mr. Pank had deceived everyone in the hotel except herself, and they meant to rob the safe in the bureau tomorrow night. Of course Mr. Lionel Belmont was a villain, or he would not have deserted her poor dear mother. It was annoying, but indubitable. Even now he was maturing his plans round the corner with that Mr. Pank. Burglars always went about in shirt-sleeves. The brown bag contained the tools. The shock was frightful, disastrous, tragic, but it had solved the situation by destroying it. Practically Nina no longer had a father. He had existed for about four hours as a magnificent reality, full of possibilities. He now ceased to be recognisable. 
She was about to pick up a third telegram when a slight noise caused her to turn swiftly. She had forgotten to keep her little pink ears alert. Her father stood in the doorway. He was certainly the victim of some extraordinary emotion. His face worked. He seemed at a loss what to do or say. He seemed pained, confused, even astounded. Simple, foolish Nina had upset the balance of his equations. Then he resumed his self-control and came forward into the room with a smile intended to be airy. Meanwhile Nina had not moved. One is inclined to pity the artless and defenceless girl in this midnight duel of wits with a shrewd, resourceful and unscrupulous man of the world, but one's pity should not be lavished on an undeserving object. Though Nina trembled, she was mistress of herself. She knew just where she was and just how to behave. She was as impregnable as Gibraltar. Well, said Mr. Lionel Belmont, genially gazing at her pose, you do put a snap into it anyway. Into what? she was about to inquire, but prudently she held her tongue. Drawing herself up with the gesture of an offended and unapproachable queen, the little thing sailed past him, close past her own father, and so out of the room. "'Say,' she heard him remark, "'let's straighten this thing out, eh?' But she heroically ignored him, thinking the while that, with all his sins, he was attractive enough. She still held the first telegram in her long, thin fingers. So ended the nocturne. Part 4 at five o'clock the next morning, Nina's trifling nose was pressed against the window-pane of her cubicle. In the enormous slate roof of the Majestic are three rows of round windows, like portholes. Out of the highest one, at the extremity of the left wing, Nina looked. From thence she could see five other vast hotels, and the yard of Charing Cross Station, with three night cabs drawn up to the curb, and a red van of W. H. Smith & Son disappearing into the station. The strand was quite empty. It was a strange world of sleep and greyness and disillusion. Within a couple of hundred yards or so of her, thousands of people lay asleep, and they would all soon wake into the disillusion, and the strand would wake, and the first omnibus of all the omnibuses would come along. Never had simple Nina felt so sad and weary. She was determined to give up her father. She was bound to tell the manager of her discovery, for Nina was an honest servant, and she was piqued in her honesty. No one should know that Lionel Belmont was her father. She saw before her the task of forgetting him, and forgetting the rich dreams of which he had been the origin. She was once more a bookkeeper with no prospects. At eight she saw the manager in the managerial room. Mr. Reuben was a young Jew, aged about thirty-four, with a cold but indestructibly polite manner. He was a great man, and he knew it. He had almost invented the Majestic. She told him her news. It was impossible for foolish Nina to conceal her righteousness and her sense of her importance. "'Whom did you say, Miss Malpass?' asked Mr. Reuben. "'Mr. Lionel Belmont. At least that's what he calls himself.' calls himself, Miss Malpass. Here's one of the telegrams. Mr. Reuben read it, looked at little Nina, and smiled. He never laughed. 
"'Is it possible, Miss Malpas,' said he, "'that you don't know who Mr. Belmont and Mr. Pank are?' And then, as she shook her head, he continued in his impassive, precise way, "'Mr. Belmont is one of the principal theatrical managers in the United States. "'Mr. Pank is one of the principal playwrights in the United States. "'Mr. Pank's melodrama, Nebraska, is now being played at the Regency "'by Mr. Belmont's own American company.' Another of Mr. Belmont's companies starts shortly for a tour in the provinces with the musical comedy The Dolmenico Doll. I believe that Mr. Pank and Mr. Belmont are now writing a new melodrama, and as they have both been travelling but not together, I expect that these telegrams relate to that melodrama. Did you suppose that safe burglars wire their plans to each other like this? He waved the telegram with a gesture of fatigue. Silly, ruined Nina made no answer. "'Do you ever read the papers, the telegraph, or the mail, Miss Malpas?' "'No, sir.' "'You ought to. Then you wouldn't be so ignorant and silly. A hotel clerk can't know too much.' "'And, by the way, what were you doing in Mr. Belmont's room last night, when you found these wonderful telegrams?' "'I went there—I went there to—' "'Don't cry, please. It won't help you. You must leave here to-day.' You've been here three weeks, I think. I'll tell Mr. Smith to pay you your month's wages. You don't know enough for the majestic Miss Malpas, or perhaps you know too much. I'm sorry I had thought you would suit us. Keep straight, that's all I have to say to you. Go back to Doncaster, or wherever it is you came from. Leave before five o'clock. That'll do. With a godlike air, Mr. Reuben swung round his office chair and faced his desk. He tried not to perceive that there was a mysterious quality about this case which he had not quite understood. Nina tripped piteously out. In the whole of London Nina had one acquaintance, and an hour or so later, after drinking some tea, she set forth to visit this acquaintance. The weight of her own foolishness, fatuity, silliness, and ignorance was heavy upon her. And, moreover, she had been told that Mr. Lionel Belmont had already departed back to America, his luggage being marked for the American transport line. She was primly walking the superlative of the miserable past the façade of the hotel when someone sprang out of a cab and spoke to her, and it was Mr. Lionel Belmont. "'Get right into this handsome, Miss Malpas,' he said kindly, "'and I guess we'll talk it out.' talk what out, she thought, but she got in. Marble Arch and go up Regent Street, and don't hurry, said Mr. Belmont to the cabman. How did he know my name? she asked herself. A hansom's the most private place in London, he said, after a pause. It certainly did seem to her very cosy and private, and her nearness to one of the principal theatrical managers in America was almost startling. Her white frock with the black velvet decorations touched his grey suit. Now, he said, I do wish you'd tell me why you were in my parlour last night, honest. What for? she parried to gain time. Should she begin to disclose her identity? Because, well, because, oh, look here, my girl, I want to be on very peculiar terms with you. I want to straighten out everything. You'll be sort of struck, but I'll be bound to tell you I'm your father. Now, don't faint or anything. Oh, I knew that, she gasped. I saw the moles on your wrist when you were registering. Mother told me about them. Oh, if I had only known you knew. 
they looked at one another. It was only the day before yesterday I found out I possessed such a thing as a daughter. I had a kind of fancy to go round to the old spot. This notion of me having a daughter struck me considerable, and I concluded to trace her and size her up at once. Nina was bound to smile. So your poor mother's been dead three years? Yes, said Nina. Ah, don't let us talk about that. I feel I can't say just the right thing. And so you knew me by those pips? He pulled up his right sleeve. Was that why you came up to my parlour? Nina nodded, and Lionel Belmont sighed with relief. Why didn't you tell me at once, my dear, who you were? I didn't dare, she smiled. I was afraid. I thought you wouldn't. Listen, he said, I've wanted someone like you for years, years and years. I've got no one to look after. Then why didn't you tell me at once who you were? She questioned with adorable pertness. Oh, he laughed, how could I plump like that? When I saw you first in the bureau, the stricken image of your mother at your age, I was nearly down. But I came up all right, didn't I, my dear? I acted it out well, didn't I? The hansom was rolling through Hyde Park, and the sunshiny hour was eleven in June. Nina looked forth on the gay and brilliant scene. Rhododendrons, duchesses, horses, dandies, the incomparable wealth and splendour of the capital. She took a long breath, and began to be happy for the rest of her life. She felt that, despite her plain frock, she was in this picture. Her father had told her that his income was rising on a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and he would thank her to spend it. Her father had told her, when she had confessed the scene with Mr. Reuben and what led to it, that she had grit, and that the mistake was excusable, and that a girl as pretty as she was didn't want to be as fly as Mr. Reuben had said. Her father had told her that he was proud of her, and he had not been so rude as to laugh at her blunder. She felt that she was about to enter upon the true and only vocation of a dainty little morsel, namely to spend money earned by other people. She thought less homicidally now of the thirteen chorus girls of the previous night. "'Say,' said her father, "'I sail this afternoon for New York, Nina. "'They said you'd gone at the hotel.' "'Only my baggage. The Minnehaha clears at five. "'I guess I want you to come along, too. "'On the voyage we'll get acquainted and tell each other things.' "'Suppose I say I won't?' "'She spoke despotically, as the pampered darling should. "'Then I'll wait for the next boat, but it'll be awkward. "'Then I'll come, but I've got no things.' He pushed up the trap-door. Driver, Bond Street, and get on to yourself, for goodness sake, hurry! You told me not to hurry, grumbled the cabby. And now I tell you to hustle, see? Shall you want me to call myself Belmont? Nina asked. I chose it because it was a fine ten-horsepower name twenty years ago, said her father, and she murmured that she liked the name very much. As Lionel Belmont the Magnificent paid the cabman, and Nina walked across the pavement into one of the most famous repositories of expensive frippery in the world, she thrilled with the profoundest pleasure her tiny soul was capable of. Foolish, simple Nina had achieved the Naples Ultra of her languorous dreams. End of chapter 11
Chapter Twelve of Tales of the Five Towns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Twelve. Clarice of the Autumn Concerts. Part One. What did you say your name was? Asked Otto, the famous concert manager. Clara Toft. That won't do. He said roughly. My real proper name is Clarice," she added, blushing. But that's better. That's better. His large, dark face smiled carelessly. Clarice, and stick an e onto Toft. Clarice Toft. Looks like either French or German. Then I'll send you the date. It'll be the second week in September, and you can come round to the theatre and try the piano. Beckstein. And what do you think I'd better play, Mister Otto? You must play what you have just played, of course. Tchaikovsky's all the rage just now. Your left hand's very weak, especially in the last movement. You've got to make more noise at my concerts. And see here, Miss Toft, don't you go and make a fool of me. I believe you have a great future, and I'm backing my opinion. Don't you go and make a fool of me. I shall play my very best. She smiled nervously. I'm awfully obliged to you, Mister Otto. Well, he said, you ought to be. At the age of fifteen, her father, an earthenware manufacturer and the flamboyant alderman of Turnhill in the Five Towns, had let her depart to London to the Royal College of Music. Thence, at nineteen, she had proceeded to the Conservatoire of Liège. At twenty-two, she could play the great concert pieces: Liszt's Rhapsodies Hongroises, Chopin's Ballade Opus Forty-Seven, Beethoven's Opus One Hundred Eleven, etc., in concert style. And she was the wonder of the five towns when she visited Turnhill. But in London she had obtained neither engagements nor pupils. She had never believed in herself. She knew of dozens of pianists whom she deemed more brilliant than little, pretty, modest Clara Toft. And after her father's death and the not surprising revelation of his true financial condition, she settled with her faded, captious mother in Turnhill as a teacher of the pianoforte. And did nicely. Then, when she was twenty-six and content in provincialism, she had met during an August holiday at Llandudno her old fellow pupil, Albert Barbellion, who was conducting the pier concerts. Barbellion had asked her to play at a soirée musicale, which he gave one night in the ballroom of his hotel, and she had performed Tchaikovsky's immense and lurid Slavonic sonata. And the unparalleled Otto, renowned throughout the British Empire for Otto's Bohemian autumn nightly concerts at Covent Garden Theatre, had happened to hear her and that seldom played sonata for the first time. It was a wondrous chance. Otto's large, picturesque, extempore way of inviting her to appear at his promenade concerts reminded her of her father. Part two. In the bleak, three-cornered artist's room, she could faintly hear the descending, impetuous velocities of the ride of the Valkyries. She was waiting in her new yellow dress, waiting painfully. Otto rushed in, a glass in his hand. "You all right?" he questioned sharply. "Oh yes," she said, getting up from the cane chair. "Let me see you stand on one leg," he said. And then, because she hesitated, "Go on, quick, stand on one leg. It's a good test." So she stood on one leg, foolishly smiling. Here, drink this," he ordered, and she had to drink brandy and soda out of the glass. "You're better now," he remarked, and 
Decidedly, though her throat tingled and she coughed, she felt equal to anything at that moment. A stout, middle-aged woman in a rather shabby opera cloak entered the room. "'Ah, Cornelia!' exclaimed Otto grandly. "'My dear Otto,' the woman responded, wrinkling her wonderfully enamelled cheeks. "'Miss Toft, let me introduce you to Madame Lopez,' he turned to the newcomer. "'Keep her calm for me, bright star, will you?' Then Otto went, and Clarice was left alone with the world-famous operatic soprano, who was advertised to sing that night the shadow song from Dinora. "'Where did he pick you up, my dear?' the decayed diva inquired maternally. Clarice briefly explained. "'You aren't paying him anything, are you?' "'Oh, no,' said Clarice, shocked. "'But I get no fee this time.' "'Of course not, my dear,' the Lopez cut her short. "'It's all right so long as you aren't paying him anything to let you go on. Now run along.' Clarice's heart stopped. The call-boy with his cockney twang had pronounced her name. She moved forward, and, by dint of following the call-boy, at length reached the stage. Applause, good-natured applause, seemed to roll towards her from the uttermost parts of the vast auditorium. She realised with a start that this applause was exclusively for her. She sat down to the piano, and there ensued a death-like silence, a silence broken only by the striking of matches and the tinkle of the embowered fountain in front of the stage. She had a consciousness, rather than a vision, of a floor of thousands of upturned faces below her, and tier upon tier of faces rising above her, and receding to the illimitable dark distances of the gallery. She heard a door bang, and perceived that some members of the orchestra were creeping quietly out at the back. Then she plunged dizzy into the sonata, as into a heaving and profound sea. The huge concert piano resounded under the onslaught of her broad hands. When she had played ten bars, she knew with an absolute conviction that she would do justice to her talent. She could see, as it were, the entire sonata stretched out in detail before her, like a road over which she had to travel. At the end of the first movement the clapping enheartened her. She smiled confidently at the conductor, who, unemployed during her number, sat on a chair under his desk. Before recommencing, she gazed boldly at the house, and certain placards, smoking permitted, emergency exit, ices, and fancy dress balls, were fixed for ever on the retina of her eye. At the end of the second movement there was more applause, and the conductor tapped appreciation with his stick against the pillar of his desk. The leader of the listless orchestra also tapped with his fiddle-bow and nodded. It seemed to her now that she more and more dominated the piano, and that she rendered the great finale with masterful and fierce assurance. She was pleased with herself as she banged the last massive chord, and the applause, the clapping, the hammering of sticks astounded her, staggered her. She might have died of happiness while she bowed and bowed again. She ran off the stage triumphant, and the applause seemed to assail her little figure from all quarters and overwhelm it. As she stood waiting, concealed behind a group of palms, it suddenly occurred to her that, after all, she had underestimated herself. She saw her rosy future as the spoiled darling of continental capitals. The hail of clapping persisted, and the apparition of Otto violently waved her to return to the stage. 
She returned, bowed her passionate exultation with burning face and trembling knees, and retired. The clapping continued. Yes, she would be compelled to grant an encore, to grant one. She would grant it like a honeyed but imperious queen. Suddenly she heard the warning tap of the conductor's baton. The applause was hushed as though by a charm, and the orchestra broke into the overture to Zampa. She could not understand, she could not think. As she tripped tragically to the artist's room in her new yellow dress, she said to herself that the conductor must have made some mistake, and that— "'Very nice, my dear,' said the Lopez kindly to her. "'You got quite a call, quite a call.' She waited for Otto to come and talk to her. At length the Lopez was summoned, and Clarice followed to listen to her. And when the Lopez had soared with strong practice flight through the brilliant intricacy of the shadow song, Clarice became aware what real applause sounded like from the stage. It shook the stage as the old favourite of two generations, wearing her set smile, waddled back to the debutante. Scores of voices hoarsely shouted, Encore! and Last Rose of Summer! And with a proud sigh the Lopez went on again, bowing. Clarice saw nothing more of Otto, who doubtless had other birds to snare. The next day only three daily papers mentioned the concert at all. In fact, Otto expected press notices but once a week. All three papers praised the matchless Lopez in her shadow song. One referred to Clarice as talented, another called her well-intentioned, the third merely said that she had played. The short dream of artistic ascendancy lay in fragments around her. She was a sensible girl, and stamped those iridescent fragments into dust. Part 3 The Staffordshire Signal contained the following advertisement. Miss Clara Toft, solo pianist of the Autumn Concerts, London, will resume lessons on the first proximo at List House, Turnhill. Terms on application. At thirty, Clarice married James Silito, the pianoforte dealer in Market Square, Turnhill, and captious old Mrs. Toft formed part of the new household. At thirty-four, Clarice possessed a little girl and two little boys, twins. Silito was a money-maker, and she no longer gave lessons. Happy, perhaps not unhappy. End of chapter 12《》Tales of the Five Towns This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 13 A Letter Home. Written in 1893. Part 1. Rain was falling. It had fallen steadily through the night, but the sky showed promise of fairer weather. As the first streaks of dawn appeared, the wind died away, and the young leaves on the trees were almost silent. The birds were insistently clamorous, vociferating times without number that it was a healthy spring morning and good to be alive. A little bedraggled crowd stood before the park gates, awaiting the hour named on the notice-board when they would be admitted to such lodging and shelter as iron seats and overspreading branches might afford. A weary, patient-eyed, dogged crowd, a dozen men, 
a boy of thirteen and a couple of women, both past middle age, which had been gathering slowly since five o'clock. The boy appeared to be the least uncomfortable. His feet were bare, but he had slept well in an area in Grosvenor Place, and was not very damp yet. The women had nodded on many doorsteps and were soaked. They stood apart from the men, who seemed unconscious of their existence. The men were exactly such as one would have expected to find there, beery and restless as to the eyes, quaintly shod and with nondescript greenish clothes, which for the most part bore traces of the yoke of the sandwich board. Only one amongst them was different. He was young, and his cap, and manner of wearing it, gave sign of the sea. His face showed the rough outlines of his history, yet it was a transparently honest face, very pale, but still boyish and fresh enough to make one wonder by what rapid descent he had reached his present level. Perhaps the receding chin, the heavy, pouting lower lip, and the ceaselessly twitching mouth offered a key to the problem. "'Say, Darkey,' he said, "'well, how much longer? Can't you see the clock? It's staring ye in the face.' "'No, something queer's come over my eyes.' Darkey was a short, sturdy man who kept his head down and his hands deep in his pockets. The raindrops clinging to the rim of an ancient hat fell every now and then into his grey beard, which presented a drowned appearance. He was a person of long and varied experiences. He knew that queer feeling in the eyes, and his heart softened. "'Come, lean against the pillar,' he said, "'if you don't want to tumble.' Three of brandy's what you want. There's four minutes to wait yet. With body flattened to the masonry, legs apart and head thrown back, Darkey's companion felt more secure, and his mercurial spirits began to revive. He took off his cap and, brushing back his light brown curly hair with a hand which held it, he looked down at Darkey through half-closed eyes, the play of his features divided between a smile and a yawn. He had a lively sense of humour, and the irony of his situation was not lost on him. He took a grim, ferocious delight in calling up the might-have-beens and the fatuous, ineffectual yesterdays of life. There is a certain sardonic satisfaction to be gleaned from a frank recognition of the fact that you are the architect of your own misfortune. He felt that satisfaction, and laughed at Darkey, who was one of those who moan about ill-luck and victims of circumstance. No doubt, he would say, you're a very deserving fellow, Darkey, who's been treated badly. I'm not. To have attained such wisdom at twenty-five is not to have lived altogether in vain. A park-keeper presently arrived to unlock the gates, and the band of outcasts straggled indolently towards the nearest sheltered seats. Some went to sleep at once, in a sitting posture. Darkey produced a clay pipe, and, charging it with a few shreds of tobacco laboriously gathered from his waistcoat pocket, began to smoke. He was accustomed to this sort of thing, and with a pipe in his mouth could contrive to be moderately philosophical upon occasion. He looked curiously at his companion, who lay stretched at full length on another bench. "'I say, pal,' he remarked, "'I've known ye two days. You've never told me your name, and I don't ask you to.' "'But I see you've not slept in the park before.' "'You hit it, Darkey. But how?' "'Well, if the keeper catches you lying down, he'll be on to you. Lying down's not allowed.' The man raised himself on his elbow. 
really now,' he said. "'That's interesting. "'But I think I'll give the keeper the opportunity of moving me. "'Why, it's quite fine. "'The sun's coming out and the sparrows are hopping around, "'cheeky little devils. "'I'm not sure that I don't feel jolly.' "'I wish I'd got the price of a pint about me,' sighed Darkey. "'And the other man dropped his head and appeared to sleep. "'Then Darkey dozed a little, "'and heard in his waking sleep the heavy, crunching tread of an approaching park-keeper. "'He started up to warn his companion, "'but thought better of it and closed his eyes again. "'Now then, there,' the park-keeper shouted to the man with the sailor's cap, "'get up, this ain't a fortney doss, you know, no lying down.' A rough shake accompanied the words, and the man sat up. "'All right, my friend.' The keeper, who was a good-humoured man, passed on without further objurgation. The face of the younger man had grown whiter. "'Look here, Darkey,' he said, "'I believe I'm done for.' "'Never say die.' "'No, just die without speaking.' His head fell forward and his eyes closed. "'At any rate, this is better than some deaths I've seen,' he began again, with a strange accession of liveliness. "'Darkey, did I tell you the story of the five Japanese girls?' "'What in Suez Bay?' said Darkey, who had heard many sea-stories during the last two days, and recollected them but hazily. "'No, man, this was at Nagasaki. We were taking in a cargo of coal for Hong Kong. Hundreds of little Jap girls passed the coal from hand to hand over the ship's side in tiny baskets.' that hold about a plateful. In that way you can get three thousand tons aboard in two days. "'Talking of platefuls reminds me of sausage and mash,' said Darkey. "'Don't interrupt. Well, five of these gay little dolls wanted to go to Hong Kong, and they arranged with the Chinese sailors to stow away. I believe their friends paid those cold-blooded fiends something to pass them down food on the voyage, and give them an airing at nights.' We had a particularly lively trip, battened everything down tight and scarcely uncovered till we got into port. Then I and another man found those five girls among the coal. Dead, eh? They'd simply torn themselves to pieces. Their bits of frock things were in strips, and they were scratched deep from top to toe. The Chinese had never troubled their heads about them at all, although they must have known it meant death. You may bet there was a row. The Japanese authorities make you search ship before sailing now. Well, well, I shan't die like that, that's all. He stretched himself out once more, and for ten minutes neither spoke. The park-keeper strolled up again. Get up there, he said shortly and gruffly. Up you get, mate, added Darkey. But the man on the bench did not stir. One look at his face sufficed to startle the keeper, and presently two policemen were wheeling an ambulance cart to the hospital. Darkey followed, gave such information as he could, and then went his own ways. Part 2 In the afternoon the patient regained full consciousness. His eyes wandered vacantly about the illimitable ward, with its rows of beds stretching away on either side of him. A woman with a white cap, white apron, and white wristbands bent over him, and he felt something gratefully warm passing down his throat. For just one second he was happy. Then his memory returned, and the nurse saw that he was crying. When he caught the nurse's eye, he ceased, and looked steadily at the distant ceiling. You're better? Yes. 
He tried to speak boldly, decisively, nonchalantly. He was filled with a sense of physical shame, the shame which bodily helplessness always experiences in the presence of arrogant, patronising health. He would have got up and walked briskly away if he could. He hated to be waited on, to be humoured, to be examined and theorised about. This woman would be wanting to feel his pulse. She should not. He would turn cantankerous. No doubt they had been saying to each other, And so young, too, how sad! Confound them! Have you any friends that you would like to send for? No, none. The girl, she was only a girl, looked at him, and there was that in her eye which overcame him. None at all? Not that I want to see. Are your parents alive? My mother is, but she lives away in the five towns. You've not seen her lately, perhaps? He did not reply, and the nurse spoke again, but her voice sounded indistinct and far off. When he awoke it was night. At the other end of the ward was a long table covered with a white cloth, and on this table a lamp. In the ring of light under the lamp was an open book, an inkstand, and a pen. A nurse, not his nurse, was standing by the table, her fingers idly drumming the cloth, and near her a man in evening dress, perhaps a doctor. They were conversing in low tones. In the middle of the ward was an open stove, and the restless flames were reflected in all the brass knobs of the bedsteads, and in some shiny metal balls which hung from an unlighted chandelier. His part of the ward was almost in darkness. A confused, subdued murmur of little coughs, breathings, rustlings, was continually audible, and sometimes it rose above the conversation at the table. He noticed all these things. He became conscious, too, of a strangely familiar smell. What was it? Ah, yes, acetic acid. His mother used it for her rheumatics. Suddenly, magically, a great longing came over him. He must see his mother, or his brothers, or his little sister, someone who knew him, someone who belonged to him. He could have cried out in his desire. This one thought consumed all his faculties. If his mother could but walk in just now through that doorway, if only old Spot, even, could amble up to him, tongue out and tail furiously wagging. He tried to sit up, and he could not move. Then despair settled on him and weighed him down. He closed his eyes. The doctor and the nurse came slowly up the ward, pausing here and there. They stopped before his bed, and he held his breath. Not roused up again, I suppose? No. Hmm. He may flicker on for forty-eight hours, not more. They went on, and with a sigh of relief he opened his eyes again. The doctor shook hands with the nurse, who returned to the table and sat down. Death! The end of all this! Yes, it was coming. He felt it. His had been one of those wasted lives of which he used to read in books. How strange! Almost amusing! He was one of those sons who bring sorrow and shame into a family. Again, how strange! What a coincidence that he, just he, and not the man in the next bed, should be one of those rare, legendary good-for-nothings who go recklessly to ruin. And yet he was sure that he was not such a bad fellow after all. Only somehow he had been careless. Yes, careless, that was the word. Nothing worse. 
As to death, he was indifferent. Remembering his father's death, he reflected that it was probably less disturbing to die one's self than to watch another pass. He smelt the acetic acid once more, and his thoughts reverted to his mother. Poor mother! No, great mother! The grandeur of her life's struggle filled him with a sense of awe. Strange that until that moment he had never seen the heroic side of her humdrum, commonplace existence. He must write to her now, at once, before it was too late. His letter would trouble her, add another wrinkle to her face, but he must write. She must know that he had been thinking of her. "'Nurse!' he cried out in a thin, weak voice. "'Shh!' She was by his side directly, but not before he had lost consciousness again. The following morning he managed with infinite labour to scrawl a few lines. "'Dear Mamma, you will be surprised, but not glad, to get this letter. I'm done for, and you will never see me again. I'm sorry for what I've done and how I've treated you, but it's no use saying anything now. If Pater had only lived, he might have kept me in order. But you were too kind, you know. You've had a hard struggle these last six years.' And I hope Arthur and Dick will stand by you better than I did, now they're growing up. Give them my love, and kiss little Fanny for me. Willie. Mrs. Hancock He got no further with the address. Part 3 By some turn of the wheel, Darkey gathered several shillings during the next day or two, and feeling both elated and benevolent, he called one afternoon at the hospital, just to inquire, like, they told him the man was dead. By the way, he left a letter without an address. Mrs. Hancock, here it is. That'll be his mother. He did tell me about her. Lived at Knipe, Staffordshire, he said. I'll see to it. They gave Darkey the letter. So, his name's Hancock, he soliloquised when he got into the street. I knew a girl of that name once. I'll go and have a pint of four-half. At nine o'clock that night Darkey was still consuming four-half, and relating certain adventures by sea which, he averred, had happened to himself. He was very drunk. "'Yes,' he said, "'and them five little gals was lying there without a stitch on em dead as meat as true as I'm here. I've seen a thing or two in my time, I can tell ye.' "'Talking about these anarchists,' said a man who appeared anxious to change the subject, Anarchists, Darkey interrupted. I tell you what I'd do with that muck. He stopped to light his pipe, looked in vain for a match, felt in his pockets, and pulled out a piece of paper. The letter. I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd... He slowly and meditatively tore the letter in two, dropped one piece on the floor, thrust the other into a convenient gas-jet, and applied it to the tobacco. I'd get them together in a heap, and I'd... Damn this pipe! He picked up the other half of the letter and relighted the pipe. After you, mate, said a man sitting near who was just biting the end from a cigar. End of chapter thirteen. End of Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.